Well, today we move from chapter 11 of John's Gospel uh, to chapter 12, uh, specifically the first 11 verses. And if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, you're going to find that on page 898. And if you have been with us these past three weeks, uh, since the beginning of the new year, you know that we have been in John 11 for the entirety of that time, uh, the famous story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And then if you were with us last week, uh, we got to see the reaction of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And needless to say, they weren't happy. In fact, we also got to hear this unintended prophecy from the high priest at the time, Caiaphas. Caiaphas who declared, it is better that one man should die for the people. Now, of course, Caiaphas simply meant that the religious leaders should just hire a hitman. Just take Jesus out, get rid of him, and our problems will be over. But John makes clear. God's purpose and plan. Substitutionary atonement. That Jesus would die in the place of, as a substitute for His people, for those who look to Him in faith. And so now we move into chapter 12. And we enter into the most momentous week in world history. One that begins here with the arrival of Jesus at Bethany on his way to Jerusalem on the road to the cross. And so before we hear this part of God's word, let's take a moment to pray. Lord God Almighty, once again, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your life-giving word and for the truth of your gospel revealed to us in it, revealed to us in Jesus. And so we would pray now that by the power of your spirit that you would open us to your word and your word to us. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen. So John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of God. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came 
not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And this is God's word. So the most momentous week in world history, it begins here. It begins with the arrival of Jesus at Bethany on his way to Jerusalem on the road to the cross. And John tells a peculiar story here, a fascinating story, and one that he knows his readers are already familiar with. And and so what he's trying to do is, is to help them, to help us connect the dots. In fact, John has actually set this story up back at the beginning of chapter 11. The beginning of chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was this Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So from the very beginning of chapter 11, John has wanted us to have this scene in our sights. And so we've arrived. We're we're in chapter 12. We're now back in Bethany. Jesus had gone away for a time, and and now he's back. And what's going on this time? What's happening now? Well, we've got a dinner, a, a dinner party. It's in honor of Jesus. Martha serves. Lazarus is at the table. Uh, Mary anoints. Uh, Judas objects. Jesus defends and speaks of his death. And you may already know that John is, is not the only gospel writer uh, to share this story. Matthew and Mark do it as well. Uh, they have their own version of this encounter with Jesus. Uh, Matthew 26 and Mark 14. And so together, these three accounts give us a fuller picture of what's going on. Uh, In fact, one of the things that we learn from these other two writers is that the dinner party was held at the house of a man named Simon, a man that they called Simon the leper, uh, presumably somebody that Jesus had healed. And so with that said, there are four things, four things that I'm going to highlight in this passage. Four things that that I want you to see, that John wants all of us to see. And the first thing that I want you to see, in fact, the very first thing that John wants us to see here is the word, therefore. Therefore, in, in Greek, it's actually the very first word of chapter 12. Therefore... Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. And you may have heard before, but whenever we come across a therefore in the Bible, it's often helpful to ask the question, what's the therefore therefore? Because the therefore points us back. It keeps us rooted in what has already come before, before we can move ahead. And so if you'll remember at the end of chapter 11, because of what Jesus had already done in Bethany, raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, At the end of the last chapter, the religious leaders have made plans to put Jesus to death. Verse 53. Then, in verse 54, it says that Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, 
but went from Bethany to the region near the wilderness. So the plan to kill Jesus. Jesus takes off, leaves Bethany. Now, I, I don't know about you, but, but if I'm on somebody's hit list and I find out about it, I'm taking off. I'm getting out of town. But it's important for us to see that Jesus does not leave town because he is scared or because he is running away from anything. Not at all. He left because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Now that's a phrase that John has already used several times in his gospel, with hour being John's repeated reference to Jesus' time to die. But now there's something different. Because now his hour has come. Because it's the time for the Passover festival. When the Passover lambs are killed. And the hour has come for Jesus to be killed. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The time has come. And so that's what is behind all of this. The time has come. Therefore, Jesus, six days before the Passover, comes to Bethany. He returns to Bethany. And John makes clear that it is precisely because the religious leaders are seeking to arrest and kill him at the Passover, this is why Jesus now travels from the wilderness back to Bethany. Two miles from Jerusalem. Two miles from the cross. The very first thing John wants us to see here is the intentionality of God. The intentionality of God, God's purpose, God's plan, God's timing. John wants us to see God's sovereign control over all things. Now, the, the Pharisees and the, the chief priests, they think they're in control, but they aren't. You and I often think we're in control, but we're not. And John wants to, wants to make clear God is in control. He was in control then, and He's in control now. And so we see Jesus step toward Jerusalem intentionally, purposefully. Jesus takes the initiative now that His hour has come. And so finally, the time has come for one man to die for the people. Well, the second thing that I want you to see in this passage is the clear contrast between two specific people. Now, back in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, the objection to Mary's action, uh, the, the objection is attributed to a wider audience. In other words, pretty much everybody at this dinner party has a problem with what Mary does. Everybody at the dinner party pretty much is complaining. But John singles out Judas. And he does so to draw a clear contrast between Mary and Judas. And this is actually similar, if you remember, it's similar to what John has already done back in chapter 6. Now, I realize that was probably like nine months ago when we were in that chapter. But if you can remember, there was a clear contrast between Peter and Judas, between true discipleship and false discipleship, where Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Judas is referred to as a devil 
and the one who is going to betray Jesus. In fact, back in chapter 6, it's the very first time that we're introduced to Judas. But here, chapter 12, it's the very first time we hear him speak. And think about these first words we hear out of Judas' mouth. His words are harsh, cutting, crushing, cruel to Mary, disrespectful to Jesus. Mary, come on. What in the world are you doing? What a waste, you stupid. Jesus, I mean... And you, accepting this gift, approving of something so outrageous, what do you think, are you worth something like this? Now, Matthew and Mark used the word indignant, that that was the reaction to to what Mary had done. And Mark goes even further and he says that Mary was scolded. And the Greek word that he uses for scolded means to bellow with anger. To snort or roar like an angry animal. It's actually the same word that's used for Jesus when he approaches the tomb of Lazarus. Now, we're going to come back in a moment to why what Mary did was, was so outrageous. But for now, I want you to hear the anger being yelled at her. Judas is irate. And John lets us know why. He was a thief. And he doesn't care about anybody except himself. And so why does does John single Judas out here? Well, he singles him out for a reason. Because he wants his readers, he wants us to be able to look into the mirror of God's word. He wants us to be able to be confronted and to examine our own hearts. Are you merely in it for yourself? Or do you truly love Jesus? Do you mainly care about what Jesus can do for you? Or do you really care about Jesus himself for who he is? Is Jesus worth everything to you? Or is he only worth something to you if he can give you everything? Well, John makes clear that Judas is in it for himself. He's in it for what he can get. And the contrast couldn't be greater. Because as you know, in the end, Judas betrays Jesus for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Judas betrays Jesus for just a few pieces of silver, and yet Mary pours out all that she has at Jesus' feet. She truly loves Jesus. To Mary, Jesus is worth everything. And so the third thing, the third thing that I want you to see in this passage is Mary. Mary, what she does and why she does it. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet. 
with her hair. And so Mary takes some expensive perfume, she anoints Jesus' feet with it, and then she wipes his feet with her hair. And so, here we have a dinner party. As you already know, it's a dinner party in honor of Jesus. And because of this dinner party, therefore, Mary brought in some perfume. You see, this was actually a common thing to do when you had special meals. You, you would bring in some perfume to, to anoint your guests. You might put a little bit on their head, you might put a little bit on their chin, but you would anoint your guests when they came in. Now, why would you do that? Think about it. I mean, for just a moment. Okay, hot climate. Lots of dust. Lots of animals and bugs. And lots of sweaty, stinky people. It's no refrigeration, no air conditioning, no running water, no showers, nothing to brush your teeth with. I mean, in a word, it stank. It would for us, it did for them. It just stunk. And so perfume and spices, they weren't so much a luxury as a necessity. This is how you made it through life. And especially if it was a special gathering with other people. You have a bunch of people into your home, you're bringing in a bunch of smelly guests. And so they were often anointed with that little dab of perfume when they came in. And it wasn't offensive to anybody. They expected it. They needed it. Now, so you come in and you get anointed. Now, on the one hand, yes, this does help you smell a little bit better. But more so what it does is it creates this protective barrier around you from the smell of your neighbor's. And so I, as I was thinking about it, I thought about you know, when you're watching a crime drama and sometimes the investigator, and, and I won't get graphic here, but they, they stumble upon a, just a grotesque, uh, stomach-wrenching scene, and, and they can't handle it, so they step out and they grab a towel, and sometimes they even put some fragrance in it, but they put it over their nose and their mouth so that they can go in and handle the situation. And so that, that's kind of what is going on here. Because you see, to have a pleasant dinner party, it would include getting out the perfume. And so the issue isn't that Mary brought in this perfume. No, it's, it's, what, actually, it's what Mary actually does with the perfume that's so outrageous, that's so startling, that's, that upsets everybody, that's so unacceptable. But why? Why is this so outrageous to the people there? Well, there's a few reasons. So let's take a look at them. For one, Mary empties the entirety of some very expensive perfume. Empties all of it, okay? It's not just a little dab. It's the whole thing. We actually learn this from Mark's account because that's where we see that she broke open the box or the flask containing this perfume. And so to break open the container, I mean, if you break it open, you're using the whole thing. And we already know this wasn't something she picked up at, you know, at, at the grocery store. I mean, this is some expensive stuff. And Judas makes that clear, saying that it is worth a year's wages. What she's got is worth a year's wages. I mean, that's a lot of money. And most commentators agree that this would have easily been the most valuable thing that they had. 
This is their financial savings. I mean, it's, it's their financial security. It may be all that they have ever saved up. And so what is Mary, what is Mary doing in this act? What is she saying? Well, this is what she's saying to Jesus. Jesus, I will give you everything. I will trust you with all that I have. I will follow you no matter what it costs. No matter what. Well, another thing that that she does that's so shocking, it's this. Mary goes to Jesus' feet. To his feet. Now, if you're familiar with the stories, you know that Matthew and Mark talk about Mary pouring the perfume over Jesus' head. So, which is it? His head or his feet? Well, it's both. And actually everything in between. Because Jesus makes clear at the end of those passages that Mary has poured ointment on my body. So literally, Mary has anointed Jesus from head to toe. But of course, John here focuses on feet. So why? Well, remember the the context here. Okay, This might be a, a, a little helpful. But remember it says in the text, it says that they were reclining at the table. And the reason they were doing that is because it's special meals. The way that it played out is the guests would, they would lay their heads near a, a low-lying table, prop up their head with, with one arm and, and then feed themselves with, with the other hand, but their feet would be sticking out behind them, away from the table. And so Mary has easy access to Jesus' feet, just like she would with everybody else's. But here's the thing. Who likes to deal with feet? I mean, dealing with feet, it may be... It may be messy sometimes today, but then, oh my goodness, it was a mess. And it was seen as humiliating, as degrading, as shameful, as well as just outright gross. And dealing with feet was something that only servants would do. And at that, only non-Jewish servants. See, if, if, if you were Jewish and you had Jewish servants... They had rights, and one of those rights was not to deal with your feet. But Mary goes straight to Jesus' feet. Why? What is she saying here? Mary is saying to Jesus, I will serve you. I will serve you no matter what. I give up my rights to you. I give up control to you. There is nothing you can't ask of me. And then something else that Mary does. In fact, it's the most startling thing of all. Mary lets down her hair. Mary lets down her hair. And so we can tell Mary has unbound her hair at this dinner party so that she could wipe the feet of Jesus. But this isn't just startling to the people. No, it's scandalous. Because you see, in that culture, this was so unacceptable. A woman unbinding her hair was seen not only as inappropriate, but as suggestive. Though clearly that's, that's not what's going on here. 
But you can begin to see why these people had such an issue with what she was doing. In fact, rabbis held that if a married woman unbound her hair in public, hey, that was grounds for divorce. And any woman letting her hair down, it was scandalous. To unbind one's hair was to express openness, affection, intimacy, abandon. And so what is Mary doing here? What is she saying with this act? Well, this is what she's saying to Jesus. Jesus, I'm not just giving you everything I have and committing to follow and serve you no matter what, but I also completely give myself to you. With all that I am, And all that I have, I'm yours fully and completely. There is no one else. Stark contrast to Judas. We see that Mary truly loves Jesus. He is her everything. Whether or not she has financial means, whether or not she has good health or a good job, a loving spouse, whether or not she loses her brother or sister to death, Mary pours it all out at the feet of Jesus because she trusts that He is truly her everything. Well, finally, the fourth thing. The fourth thing that I want you to see here, the most important thing to see, the the thing that John wants us to see over anything else, and what Mary saw is Jesus. Mary really sees Jesus. I mean, she sees Him. She is beginning to understand who He is, why He has come, what He has done, what He will do. She sees Jesus. And He knows it. Verse 7. Jesus says, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of My burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have Me. And the way that Mark puts it in his gospel is this. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now clearly, Jesus is not dismissing the poor but rather he is emphasizing his impending death. And Mary sees it. What Jesus is saying here is that Mary basically knows that he's about to be buried. And and here's what I mean. So think about the times that we meet Mary in the Bible. And, and, And there are a lot of Marys in the Bible. But this particular Mary, the Mary and Martha Mary, The Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Mary. 
We encounter this Mary three times in the Gospels. And guess where we find her each time? At the feet of Jesus. Every single time she's at the feet of Jesus. The first time, that we, uh, the first time we meet her is in Luke chapter 10. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening and learning. And then in John 11, Mary is falling at Jesus' feet in desperation and dependence. And then here, John 12, Mary is pouring herself out at Jesus' feet in gratitude and love. <clears throat> See, Mary is a learner. She has sat at the feet of Jesus. She has listened for a long time. Every time that he would come and visit, she couldn't wait to hear what he said. And she's listened carefully. She's paid attention. She started to to connect those dots, to put it all together, to reflect deeply on it. And she's even had to wrestle personally with, is he really who he says he is? In the face of her own personal tragedy at the death of her brother. And it's all come together for her. She believes. She gets it. I mean, at this point, it seems that Mary understands more than anyone else what is going on. We'll take a look, and, and, and we'll, we'll end with this. So back at the, at the end of chapter 11, after Lazarus is raised from the dead, we read this, verses 45 and 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And so it makes sense, as, as one commentator notes, some of Mary's friends went and told the Pharisees. And surely some of Mary's friends who believed in Jesus told Mary about what her other friends had done. And so Mary comes in and is basically saying, Lord, I now realize something. I realize that the only way you could have raised Lazarus was to bury yourself. I realize that the only way you can interrupt my funeral is to cause your own. I realize that it's not so simple. If, if you're going to give us life, then you're going to have to lose yours. I don't fully understand the sacrifice you're making, but I see it. Mary sees what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing. Now, she may not understand it all, do we? She may not understand it all, but his love has awakened her. Her love. And friends, so it is for us. It's only in really seeing His love over and over again. It's only in seeing His love that our hearts are awakened. That our love is awakened. And it all starts where? It always starts at the feet of Jesus. 
And so brothers and sisters, are you continually sitting at Jesus' feet, listening and learning, taking it all in, paying attention, trying to understand? Are you falling at Jesus' feet in desperation and dependence, continually recognizing your great need and God's great provision? And are you pouring yourself out at the feet of Jesus in gratitude and love? Trusting Him with all that you have and all that you are. Victor Hugo famously said, Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that we are loved. Well, at the foot of the cross, at the feet of Jesus, that's where you become more and more convinced that you are truly, fully, completely loved by God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this day. We thank you for pouring yourself out in love for us on the cross. And so we would ask now, please give us the courage and the humility to truly trust you in all things, to continually turn to you in daily repentance and faith, to really see and believe your love for us. Amen.